Please do join me now in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 20. Before we spend time for the next few minutes in God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, we are coming to you, our Father. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to continue to reveal to us who you are and who Jesus is through your word. Father, your word indeed is that lamp to our feet and light to our path. And so, Father, in this dark world, would you be pleased by your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word that we would know more about who you are and how to live as your children in this world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin by thinking for a moment about the noun that's in the title. The noun. There's a couple of adjectives, but there's a noun. Encouragement. Encouragement. Now, is this word overused or underused? Now, the word may, may possibly be overused, of course. I, through the years, have probably let it roll off my lips without even thinking much about it. But more time in God's word and having God's word define and explain what encouragement is has, has given me, I think, pause that it's less overused and hopefully more rightly used. Now, not just the word encouragement, but actually the practice, the action, the deed. Is it abused or is it neglected? Now, I think the practice is both abused and neglected. Now, when I say abused, here's what I mean. I think I and others have sometimes thought of encouragement as flattery. Building somebody up, focusing on them, flattering them, a word of encouragement to them, flattering them. So, yes, it can be abused, especially if it's thought of as flattery and not what we will see it, it truly is. Um, but I think it's neglected. Uh, encouragement is, is not just abused, but it's neglected because when it is needed and should be given, it's not given. I hope you've been able to read that article that I sent in December that I also um, attached to... Uh, this past week's um, preparing for worship email, the article is entitled The Surprising Ministry of Encouragement. And the author, and it writes this toward the beginning, I have never met anyone suffering from too much encouragement in Christ. Have you? Now that is a good question to ask, isn't it? Have we ever met someone that we know, that we love, who just has too much encouragement? Is it possible to be encouraged too much? 
Now, the word encouragement, the theme of encouragement, opens and closes our passage today. Remember, Paul is in Ephesus. He's been there at least two years, three months. You round it up to three years. We saw all of Acts 19. He's in Ephesus. And Ephesus is the base of his operations for his evangelistic and church planting ministry in Asia Minor. Um, From Ephesus, Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthian church. Now, we have in our Bible 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but most all scholars believe that there were at least four letters going back from Paul to the church and sometimes in response to letters. But here we know that it was in Ephesus that Paul writes his letter, his first letter. What we know of is is 1st Corinthians. And and in that, and as we will see later in 2nd Corinthians, what we see is from Ephesus... Paul, um, uh, his, his, his stormy and strained relationship with the church in Corinth is, is, is exposed. Uh, among other things, again, that Paul did in Ephesus, he wrote to the church in Corinth. Now, here in chapter 20, uh, he's going to be headed to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Uh, here, Acts 20 really does look already to the end of Acts. And you notice if you look back at Acts uh, 19, verse 21, he says this, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So we we already heard that. He, He wants to go, he's got a divine appointment, as it were, to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And yet we will see this journey will be marked by delays and detours, danger and difficulty. Now let's go back to encouragement, uh, thinking about the context of encouragement and the content of encouragement. The context and the the content. Um, I'm very thankful for our denomination. It's a connected denomination. There are formal and informal relationships between churches and pastors and elders and Years ago, I was living in Texas, and I attended the the General Assembly of the PCA, and there I I met a a fellow pastor that I had heard about. Uh, He was from my home state, went to a rival college I'd heard about, um, uh, and I met him. And in the years since then, we we talk fairly often. We see each other maybe every year, and when I'm back in North Carolina, sometimes I try to see him, and I called him up the other day. And... The gist of my conversation was that I was inviting him to a pity party that I was getting ready to host. And he RSVP'd in the negative. He wasn't going to join me in feeling sorry for myself. No, you know what he did? He pointed me to Jesus. He pointed me to Christ. He pointed me to suffering in ministry. He pointed me to the hope of the gospel. I was looking to get some empathy, some sympathy. He wouldn't have anything of it. He pointed me to Jesus and the gospel. My friends, after I hung up the phone, I was encouraged. What a... What a tremendous time. Now, biblically defined encouragement is people coming alongside people with the word. 
People coming alongside people with the word. And, and the content is people coming alongside people pointing each other to Jesus through the word. That's encouragement. That's the context. People coming alongside people. And it, the content is people pointing people to Jesus through the word. Through the word. Now, this theme of encouragement shows up at the beginning and again at the end of our passage. And from our text, we will see ordinary and extraordinary encouragement, both on the mission field and in the local church. Join with me now as I read the first six verses of chapter 20. After the uproar, that is the riot in Ephesus, ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Here's Paul concluding his ministry in Ephesus. And what does he do? He encourages the disciples. Uh, encouragement, parakaleo, it's a, it's a wide range of meaning, appeal, entreaty, through exhortation and encouragement to comfort and consolation. We will see that that word is translated twice as encouragement and once as comfort in our passage. You see, he is in this farewell he encourages them. He strengthens them. And Paul knows that nothing, nothing strengthens the people of God like the word of God. And so you can imagine he is encouraging them through the word. Through the word. We see in verse 2 that he departs from Macedonia. And he goes throughout that region. And what does he do? He, is, he gives them much encouragement before coming to Greece. He goes through Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and for three months, and Luke summarizes it as encouragement. Isn't that interesting? These are, he's going back to the places where churches are established. Sure, there's evangelism. Sure, there's going to be proclamations of the gospel which point out people's sin and say you are separated from God. But you know what? Paul knows what these young churches need. They need encouragement. Luke summarizes his ministry as encouragement. And what's fascinating is in Macedonia, in those three months, we believe he writes 2 Corinthians. That the letter that we know of is 2 Corinthians. It's not only to the church about them, but it's also about him. It's about his journey. Um, I'm just going to turn and read one verse from 2 Corinthians, in the first chapter, 2 Corinthians 1. So here's Paul out visiting these churches in this region, 
And in his letter, the second letter of the Corinthians, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know, Paul is a pastor and he's honest. It's hard. It's difficult. And again, this is that tumultuous, strained relationship with the, with the Corinthian church. And he moves on to Greece. That's the popular name for the Roman province of Achaia. The chief city is, is Corinth. And what's he do there in Corinth? He, he encourages them. Uh, these, these times spent in Greece is probably spent primarily in Corinth where, where Paul is, is enjoying his, his reconciled relationship with the Corinthians about whom Titus' report had given him hope. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, Ah, Titus came and gave me a report of you. And that, that strained relationship is, is reconciled. Paul is back in Corinth. And what else happens in Corinth? He writes Romans. Think about that. In the three months, right? There he spent three months in Greece, in Achaia, in Corinth. He writes the Romans, the church he had not been to but wanted to get to. This major manifesto of the Christian faith and life, the majestic epistle presenting the gospel to the church in the capital of the Roman Empire as he anticipates his first visit. Here's Paul encouraging the churches. And when it comes right down to it, the Romans is a word of encouragement. I believe we will see that he writes. Paul's got his plans, but look what happens. The Jews have their plots. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, that's happened before, hasn't it? When a plot had been made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. The enemy continues to stalk Paul. Wants to probably be on board the ship with him. A lot of Jews headed back toward Palestine. The thought is we're going to be on a crowded ship. Man overboard. There goes Paul. Paul changed his plans. I would love to see the movie. You know, they're getting ready to board the ship. They hear the, they don't go. He's warned. We don't know how, but his plans changed. He goes back through Macedonia. Detours and delays, dangers that were distressing and frustrating. Plans and schedules are disrupted. Paul's got his plans. The Jews have their plots. And God has his purposes. How many of you guys on a Monday morning plan out your week? This is what's going to happen on this day. This is what I'm going to do. We don't know what's going to happen on any given day. It's all under the good purposes of God, the sovereign plan and purposes of God. And after They decide to return through Macedonia. You see a list of a whole bunch of folks. Sopater, uh, Aristarchus, Timothy, Tychius, Trophimus, 
You see this concrete expression of the church's unity. It's going to be a traveling group that's going to make its way to Jerusalem to accompany the, um, the gift that the Gentile churches are collecting for the Jewish church back in Jerusalem. But it's an expression that says, you know, the church is united. There's geographic distance. There's demographic distance. But this ministry team that accompanies Paul that's with him displays the unity of the church. As the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem and has gone out through the Mediterranean world, you see that when people are united by faith to Christ, they are united to one another. And, and this list helps us understand that. They're going to accompany the gift, kind of the, the guards for the gift. And they're also, as it were, affirming the ministry of Paul as well. So we see encouragement from both the teaching of Paul and the example of Paul. Um, years ago when we looked at 1 Thessalonians, I think it was called A Letter to a Young Church, we read this in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build one another up. I think Paul said, as you are already doing. You're encouraging one another, keep it up. Keep doing it. He's teaching. But notice it's also the example. He himself is doing what he's calling others to do. You see, this ministry of encouragement, as I hope you saw in that article, is absolutely critical. Paul had his plans. He was inconvenienced. And he used that inconvenience to continue to encourage because he knew that it was a priority. He, he trusted God's direction. And wherever he was, as we see, he encouraged. It's a priority for Paul. Is it a priority for us? Well, when this first section ends, we see Paul and Luke, because Luke's there. We, we see the, the we passage picking up. Luke and others have come. Uh, first to Philippi and now to Troas in Asia Minor. Recall that Troas was where Paul got the vision earlier to go over to Macedonia. He didn't spend any time in Troas, but now this will be uh, the city where we are given an account of encouragement, not across a, a vast region, but rather in the worship service of a local church. So let's pick up where we left off and read verses 7 through 12. They're there for seven days, and this is the last day they're going to be there. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we, where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and they were not a little comforted. Paul 
is going to reveal his priorities. And our priorities are not only revealed in where we begin, but where we end. Um, Next week and the week after, we will see Paul's farewell to the elders uh, from the church in Ephesus. And that's really well known, I think, the farewell to the elders. But here, he is saying farewell to the church in Troas. And Paul is going to make the most of this farewell moment by encouraging them. Now, this we have before us is an early descriptive account of worship on the Lord's Day. It is descriptive, not proscriptive. In other words, do we need to have lamps with oil in our worship service? Do we need to meet on the third floor? No, it's descriptive of what is taking place. But what we do have is this. It's the first time we see that the church is gathered on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the day of the Lord's resurrection. The Sabbath has changed from the Jewish Saturday to now the Christian Lord's Day Sunday. So the day of the gathering we see, and Paul is preaching, and the words used for his speaking give us an idea that it's a speech, It's also a dialogue. It's like what he's done before where there's questions and answers and discussion. Um, And there's the word that we get homily, uh, like an old-fashioned word for for a sermon. And you've got all of that. And you see the Lord's Supper observed in the context of a fellowship meal. And again, this is a great um, moment that we see some of the um, activities and the life of the early church. And what we have here is an eyewitness account from Luke's perspective. He's writing, remember, to give certainty. He wants um, uh, Theophilus to have certainty for his beliefs. Here's Paul, the physician, the eyewitness. You see this scene, right? They're they're gathered together. It's getting toward midnight. There's um, Paul is talking on and on. You've got this young man, this youth who's being overcome by sleep, this progressive sleep. Uh, There's lamps in the upper room, smoke and haze. And he's doing a smart thing. He's getting fresh air. He doesn't want to fall asleep. You guys know what that's like, right? Sometimes I know I talk in people's sleep. But um, we all know what it's like to fight sleep, especially if you're driving. I used to roll down my window and stick my head out just to stay awake. And that's what's this young man, Eutychus, is doing. He gets up high, he wants fresh air, and he falls out the window. Now, at first glance, this might be humorous, right? I mean, at least I can read it at first glance at humorous, but just a moment's reflection says, are you kidding me? This is sober. This is sad. This man dies. This young man is dead. Luke, the physician, Luke, the medical examiner, Luke signing the death certificate, he's dead. Probably in 2009, maybe, 2010, we were meeting for worship at an elementary school library in Erlanger, Kaywood Elementary School. And some members of the church had brought a neighbor of theirs to, to join us for worship. And during the, the worship service, this 
visitor was coughing a bit, went away, I think, to the restroom and then came back, sat back down, stood up and collapsed right there in our worship service. And at the time, there was a young man who was a deputy sheriff from Boone County, you know, medical training, gets up, goes over to her, and his first words, and the only words I heard was this, I got no breathing, I got no pulse. Everything stopped. Children taken away, medical personnel attending. I'm trying to remember, what's that number? Nine, what, what is it? What is the number? Um, there's a prayer meeting set up within three minutes. Medical personnel on scene. The woman revives. I really thought when he said, I got no breathing, I got no pulse, there it was, dead in a worship service. She revived. The good news, it was some kind of seizure, some kind of, um, some who knows exactly what, but she's okay. But man, that was like death in a worship service, almost. But here, it's, it's real. It's, this young man is not mostly dead, he's, he's really dead. And what does, what does Paul do? He went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Here's echoes of the Old Testament. Prophets who threw themselves on the deceased sons of bereaved mother. In 1 Kings 17, it's Elijah who lays on the son of the widow of Zarephath and he comes back to life. In 2 Kings 4, it's Elisha laying on the son of the Shunammite woman. He comes back to life. It's the ministry of Jesus in Luke 7 when the Widow's son is raised by Jesus from the dead. It's John 11. It's Jesus and Lazarus. It's an echo earlier in Acts with Paul, excuse me, with Peter and Dorcas. This is an illustration of the life-giving power of the gospel. Here is Peter earlier and now Paul following in the footsteps of Jesus who was preceded, of course, by the prophets that pointed to him. Here is the sober reality of death. But here is the good news that through his death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and who frees everyone who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Luke ends this account with one of his typical idioms, not a little comforted. They took the youth away alive and they were not a little comforted. It's an understatement to say the least, right? I mean, here is somebody come back from the dead. They've got to be greatly encouraged, extremely encouraged, They've been hearing the promises of God's word. Now there's a confirmation with the miraculous sign of God's life giving power. It has got to be one of the most encouraging times. And Luke says they were not a little comforted. Now, although threats loomed on the horizon for Paul, his concern was 
that his fellow Christians are able to stand fast in the faith, resting on the sufficiency of Christ and the promise of the resurrection. Did you hear that earlier from 2 Corinthians 1.8? Paul felt that the hardship was so difficult, he and others were about to lose their life. But why did they go through that? So that they would rely not on themselves, but on God who does what? Who raises the dead. You know, the death rate, of course, is 100%, right? If you, if you were born, you're going to die unless Jesus returns first. And what is building up the church is the ministry of the word. It's, it's the ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacraments. There's prayer. You know, it's that ordinary that really is extraordinary, isn't it? Here is ordinary day-to-day encouragement that we see Paul doing in a region. And we see really the extraordinary, ordinary means of grace there in the local church. Remember, what was the book written? What was the letter written during Paul's particular visit this time to Corinth? Where he was three months. What was the letter? It was Romans. So let's take a look at the bookends of Romans. Uh, Romans 1. If you can get to Romans 1. Here's the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. And he says this beginning in verse 10. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Did you hear that? Mutually encouraged by each other's faith. You know, Paul is saying, hey, I am going to encourage you. And guess what? You are going to encourage me. It takes a man secure in Christ, secure in the gospel to receive encouragement from others. And not feel that he doesn't need it. Of course, Paul needs it. Of course, we all need it. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Mutual encouragement. Right off the bat. Right off the bat in Romans. And in Romans 15, and you've heard this time and again, but it never gets old. Paul writes to the church in verse 4 of chapter 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. No wonder Paul is preaching Christ, preaching the word in and around these regions, in this church. Why? Because he knows that there's encouragement in the word of the scriptures. And, he, and, and not only that, but notice how he continues in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement. Have y'all noticed that? The God of justice, the God of holiness, the God of righteousness, the God of majesty, the God of encouragement. Is that your view of God? Do you think that God is okay with us thinking that he is a God of encouragement? You better believe it is. It's in his word. 
You know, from his, his two-year house arrest in Rome, Paul writes the church in Ephesus. He was there for three years. A lot goes on. It's toward the end of his ministry. He's in Rome under house arrest, and he writes the church, and he says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Yes, be loving. Why? Because you're imitating Jesus. He can also say, be encouraging. Why? Because you're imitating God. Made in the image of God, that image is corrupted. But by grace through faith in Christ, that image is being restored. The God of encouragement wants his children to encourage. Encouragement, a crucial ministry in and through the church. Toward the end of that article, Ray Ortland says this. So, excuse me, toward the beginning. So we're already seeing what our ministry of encouragement can look like. Standing with one another, bringing a life-giving presence to one another. Real encouragement is one way we experience the Holy Spirit together. It's how we experience real community together. And this kind of community is not life-depleting, but life-enriching. Not guarded and aloof, but all-in and involved. Not scrutinizing and criticizing, but affirming and strengthening. Remember, real encouragement is not flattery. Real encouragement does not sanitize sin or bless sin. Real encouragement, though, does magnify Jesus. And what's the context of encouragement? It's between people. We are called to be both givers and receivers of encouragement. And what's the content? It's the Word of God. And what does the Word of God do first and foremost? It points the reader to Jesus. In John 5, Jesus is with some people and he says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. My friends, scripture is absolutely essential. Truth, life. But Jesus says, you think that in them you have life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, this is another one of the I am statements that's not an I am statement. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis is right. Jesus is a, is a liar. He's a lunatic or he's the Lord. And Jesus is either the most arrogant person that's ever lived or he's in reality the most humble man who ever lived because he's just speaking the truth. You search the scriptures, but there's no life there. Why? Because the scriptures point to me. Jesus says, in me, there's life. Nowhere else. So how are you doing when it comes to the giving of encouragement? I mean, honestly, ask yourself later today, how am I doing when it comes to giving encouragement? 
But ask yourself this other question. How are you doing when it comes to receiving encouragement? How are you doing not only being encouraging to others, but how are you doing being encouraged by others? Remember, it's a mutual thing. So may the God of encouragement be pleased to strengthen and comfort us today so that through his word and by his spirit, we may all rest and rely on Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. Because it's in Jesus Christ where life, true life here and now and life beyond death is found. It's in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this example from none other than the Apostle Paul of the critical importance of encouragement on the mission field in the local church. And Father, help us to grow, help me to grow, help all of us to grow in our understanding of what encouragement is and what it isn't. Father, may may we all be appropriately empathetic and sympathetic when we need to be. But may we always, in whatever we do, point people to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.